Good evening and welcome. Welcome to Road Warrior Radio. You are tuned in live this Friday, April 17th, 2009 on the one and only Republic Broadcasting Network. And I have a, a treat for you. Um, we gave Lee Bropes the night off and uh, we'll pick up again where we left off on Monday. But tonight's special guest is none other than Alan Watt, who of course is the RBN host of Cutting Through the Matrix. And... Uh, a brilliant guy who knows um, as much about the subject matter that he brings to light as uh, anybody that you'll find. And um, I was just talking to him before the show, and uh, I mentioned I, I remember him he- remember hearing him say lately or recently, excuse me, that um, doesn't even bother mem- remembering the names anymore because it's the same old game. And if you've if you've been studying it and researching it and read as much as he has, uh, you can certainly appreciate why he would say something like that. So I'm looking forward to a a fun, exciting, uh, light but engaging broadcast. It should be a lot of fun, and uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. Like I said, we'll pick up on Monday, uh, Lee Bros, and uh, I need to mention that uh, May 4th, uh, G. Edward Griffin is scheduled to be on the broadcast, so that should be fun as well. Anyway, some of the interesting stories that I saw today before we get started, I don't know if you saw these, they were uh, very interesting. I, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago when NPR played the piece that was supposedly, who knows, uh, some folks that were Taliban forces over in Afghanistan. I thought it was real interesting that... Um, New York Times Today, page one, said the Taliban exploits class rifts to gain ground in Pakistan. Very interesting. And uh, you get into the story and it says the Taliban seized control by pushing out four dozen landlords who held the most power. To do so, the militants organized peasants into armed gangs that became their shock troops, according to the residents. Okay, so what they're they're doing is, uh, well, it's Marxist class warfare. And the reason I mentioned the NPR piece from, I believe, about two weeks ago was because they were quoted as saying, we are the Bolsheviks in English, which is kind of like watching CNN with these people who are supposedly peasants in a war-torn country with signs that you and I couldn't get at Kinko's, if you know what I mean. I hope you see where I'm going with this. Anyway, all of this, of course, a prelude. Uh, to my guest who uh, knows more about the subtleties and nuances of all of this goofy nonsense than anybody that you can find. Um, the story Arizona Republic carried today, U.S. Expert, experts fear terrorist fiefdoms threaten security. Listen to this. Pakistan, apparently, according to U.S. intelligence, defense officials, and diplomatic officials, is going to be controlled by these fiefdoms, controlled by Islamist warlords and terrorists posing a greater threat to the United States than Afghanistan's terrorists' uh, haven did before September 11. Is that a psyop or is it just me? Those are just a couple of the myriad of stories that came out today. Stick around. We'll get into those probably and a whole lot more with my guest Alan Watt when we come back.
welcome back. And uh, as I said, joined this evening by my special guest, Alan Watt. Um, Alan, thanks for coming on the broadcast. It's a pleasure. pleasure. Um, We were talking before the the, uh, broadcast and during the break about uh, this this beguilement, intrigue, sophistry, whatever, of, of linguistics. And you said, you know, they're having a joke on us. I, uh, I'd i like to just throw out this story to kind of kick it off because you couldn't make it up. I mean, Los Angeles Times uh, yesterday, five killed in suspected U.S. strike. And you and I both know this happens every day. But but who, who catches this kind of stuff? It says... Um, and again, this is LA Times. It says Pakistani intelligence officials said a suspected, suspected, we can't cop to it, but a suspected U.S. missile strike killed two Arabs and three other persons. Wait a second. Two Arabs and three other persons. Are the Arabs not persons? That's right. <laughs> That's a dehumanization. You see, that's how PSYOPs works. Uh, they put a dehumanization uh, intent in the language. In the phrase, and people don't think any further, and so whenever they hear about Arab, it's, it's not a person, it doesn't matter. It's unbelievable. And, of course, that's not an isolated incident. I see that all the time. I'm sure you do. It's yeah. mind-boggling. It is, and that's what psychological operations is for. They use uh, psycholinguistics. They give courses in them. They give courses in basic logic on how the average person will perceive things and then how to basically alter their perceptions and give them their perceptions. Yeah, yeah it's unbelievable. And, and most people don't realize, you know, my wife gets upset with me sometimes because she says, I don't want to play word games with you. And I just, I feel like I'm always, every day, in a battle or, or really in a war of um, trying not to always fill in the blank predictively the way that we've been scripted to. You're right on with that because, you know, psychological tests will show you, and they show students the same little um, game uh, they go through. Uh, they'll give you a, a page to read. Everyone gets the same page to read. It's a story about something, uh, but it's designed in such a way that partway through it, uh, a sentence or two sentences are missing. And because you're scanning it and reading it, as you normally do, your mind runs ahead, you don't realize that there's two, two sentences missing and you fill in the blanks unconsciously. And everyone will agree they've read the whole thing, they'll all come to the same conclusion. And then, of course, the teacher will point out, do you realize there's two sentences in there that, that if you hadn't filled them in would have changed the whole story? And you don't yeah. realize that. That means that this is how psycholinguistics works. Our mind tends to race ahead with things, thinking we're coming to the end of it before we've heard it all. And if you understand that science, you can insert things in and distort the picture of the final perception. And it's all taught as a science uh, with, with the psycholinguistics. Yeah. And, of course, that goes along with the idea of uh, the oligarchs having the plausible deniability that they've, they've spoken of all along, saying, well, you know, you agreed to it. You agreed, and... and uh, that's a, an say too. That's not exactly what we said. It's, it's the exactly right. part they mean, yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, you had a caller that, that was keying in on words uh, yesterday, I believe, and um, I started to think of some of these things, and I mentioned that I got caught today off guard. It usually doesn't happen. I have to admit today it did. I saw the sign um, at the uh, pound, the, the uh, animal shelter, sign on the wall that said puppy food beneath it there was a big bin next to that adult food bin beneath that and I, th- I thought that was a weird you know 
what are they trying to say? You know, and, and then it, it hit me. Oh, you know, and I was thinking adult male, we're animals. We get called animals. I wasn't thinking adult dog. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I, even though I know, you know, the term adult male is referring to an animal that we should be calling men. That's um, right. That's right. This is, this is all used. We didn't realize, too, we have been, uh, again, with political correctness and so on, and, and uh, so many science articles, they're, they're doing away with the term man and woman, and it's mainly male and female now. Yep. As, as they get as used to the idea we're just another male animal or female animal. Yeah. And along with that, you know, you, you look up the, the definition of the word human in uh, any, any law dictionary of... Uh, substance over the years and they all say that a human is uh, a monster basically to paraphrase and now we have monster.com so that monsters can find jobs and monster the drink so monsters can stay awake at their jobs and mm -hmm. <laughs> yes it's crazy but, but there truly is a, a big um science as i say at the top of this it's been here for an awful long time and ruling millions of people is a science that always has been and well understood in all ages. Yeah. We are given a reality. Religion in, in previous times that gave you your complete reality. It was very minimal, but it was, it was complete too. That's all you had to know if you're a peasant. And uh, in a scientific age, all of the sciences are used on us to give us another reality, especially the imperative, as they call it, which is the agenda that's been laid out by the elite. And I think this whole reality of global warming, of uh, we've got to be monitored, to be safe, uh, and uh, we can't just breed as we're going on. This is all an agenda under the guise of a new religion, basically. They're using the religious techniques to, to guide us, and the, and the scientists are the priesthood. You know? And you, I think you mentioned um, this week, I know you've gone through several times, but um, I want to say this week, uh, you went back to the 16th century on that and came forward. Was that yes. this week? Okay. Uh, that's right. People don't realize, too, that um, the massive upheavals that were going on uh, around the 1500s, 1600s, to do with what became uh, known as Rosicrucianism or uh, eventually blossomed into Freemasonry in the 1700s. But it was a, a tremendous... Um, it was not just a, a peasant type uh, lashing out at the authoritarianism of a church. It was an organized, well-funded movement uh, that brought in Kabbalah uh, into the religion. It brought in reincarnation, by the way, um, uh, and Gnosticism. And uh, even the Catholic Church at the top were very puzzled as to, they thought that the old Gnostic uh, sects and the Aryan sects had been eliminated in the 2nd, 3rd centuries AD. But they hadn't. They had come down through time and popped up with the Cathars, Albigensians. And then you had the main leaders coming out like Bruno and other ones um, uh, preaching this particular doctrine. And Bruno himself said that he wanted to bring out uh, a world where reason would rule, but only for those who are enlightened with philosopher kings. This is an ancient tradition in Gnosticism. And they said a scientific, a scientific priesthood should rule the people. Uh, Benjamin Franklin talked about this. Uh, so did uh, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson called them the natural aristocracy. Those who have the natural intellect to rule the rest with reason uh, should do so. That, that eventually blossomed into what we called eugenics. 
and Darwinism and caused much of the problems in the 20th century because Marxism and Nazism were both founded on the Darwinistic principles and um, the geopolitical strategies that was founded by Lord Halford. He was a guy who came up with this worldwide domination, British-based idea of an empire, a world a government. Uh, this all comes from the same source down through the ages, and uh, it's fascinating to see someone in the 1500s actually saying scientific priesthood should rule over the people. That's what we have today. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. I was going to say, and you you mentioned it, of course, that you know, coming up through. I mean, obviously, we have that um, that thread coming through the founders. I know some people are uncomfortable with that. And a lot of people, you know, we have this du- this double mindedness these days. And uh, for example, when people talk about the Bible and they say Judeo Christian, Judeo refers to the uh, Talmudic Kabbalistic influence. Mm-hmm. Um, NPR played a piece on that um, recently. Oh, that was, uh, I forget uh, what day that was, but that was just in the last few days. That was for, uh, anyway, um, it's it's that influence. A lot of people have trouble. Now they, they mislead people on both sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the founders were Christian. The founders were deists or theists or whatever. Deists, and, yeah. the tr- yeah. and the truth is, uh, that, like you said, you know, there was this this Rosicrucian influence um, through that era that allowed them to embrace both sides, the science, the age of reason, and also the biblical. And that's why you have both quotes coming out of the mouths of guys like Jefferson, guys like... That's right. That's absolutely right. The, the, um, even the early Rosicrucian writings said that they were coming out to give the true teachings of Jesus. And uh, Weishaupt later on, a couple of centuries after that... Uh, but still pushing the same thing of the esoteric teachings, which is basically Gnosticism again. But yet, yeah, they could encompass Christianity because that was all that people had known in the Western world for a long time. So they had to adopt Christianity into the occult Kabbalism. And they called it um, Christian Kabbalism as they, as they merged the two together. Yeah. And so they were, you, you read the writings of Albert Pike in, the, in Morals and Dogma, and a good part of his book is devoted to Kabbalah. Yep. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, there, there was something that you were going to mention. Speaking of the uh, uh, the language, that was why I started there. I forget what it was. I didn't write it down. So it was about how they joke with us. Yes. Uh, commonly, I mean, we we had this utter planned farce of, of a financial takedown. And I, I've mentioned before. I've read from uh, an economist book, a top economist. A, a tuition book and he said that the, uh, it's heresy for an economist to tell the public there's going to be a, a crash in other words they, they would avoid it like the plague they would have a president basically starting it off telling the public to panic because a crash is coming guaranteeing yeah. to make it happen you see so this was planned but then we have characters like Madoff who makes off with the money right. then you have cash carry to give the we'll bankers right back. back money
back with my guest Alan Watt, and uh, just just because I don't know exactly how much of that we missed, um, can we back up to um, like where you were saying it's heresy for an economist to tell the people about a crash? Yeah, because uh, economics and the stock market is all based on optimism. So they never uh, want to bring the market down by giving bad news or because it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. The whole thing is gambling. That's what it's based on. So you must make everyone think they're going to keep winning and, and you can keep it going for as long as they want. It's a bubble anyway. But uh, when a president is put out in front of the public to tell you that, that, that uh, we're in trouble and there's a crash coming and it could be worse than the Great Depression, that's guaranteed to, to bring the pyramid down. It's a guaranteed. So obviously it was timed to be done at that time. And it has been because the articles that came out afterwards uh, verified that saying it's time for the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to be brought up to its proper place that it was designed to do. In other words, it's working exactly uh, on schedule as it was designed to do. So this is all a, a script we're living through right now as restructuring yeah. goes on. But uh, I was talking about the names that they give us. As I say, Madoff, Mr. Madoff, everybody prattled about Madoff, although there's lots Madoff apart from yeah. him with the loot. And, um, and then they give us a, a, they dig up a character to dish out the money to the bankers of our tax money um, called Cash Carry. And I was just reading today that the House Appropriations staffer, the head of the staffers, that they've put in charge of this other part of the money is Rob Neighbors. Rob Neighbors. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't, if you were a third-rate scriptwriter for a comedy series, you couldn't make this stuff up. They're, they're literally laughing at us. Yeah. They have to be. You couldn't, you couldn't get this kind of coincidence one after another. Doesn't well, happen. Speaking of that, you know, I was mentioning that you, you mentioned Brazil on a regular basis, 1985, uh, film and uh you know it reminds me of that because you you keep mentioning and i think you did and then and then there was kind of uh almost a withdrawal from that because you you started saying it's it's you know it used to be kind of laughable but now because this weird stuff is happening everywhere it's not even funny like you said the the names you can't make it up i mentioned yeah. earlier um like you on a regular basis i mention these stories all the time i try to key in on the stories where you know, suspicious package or uh, bomb threat or whatever, you know, every day. And, and yesterday, one of them that I saw, there was cake mix on an envelope, so they shut down a mail office. Um, uh, there was another one where a mother dropped off a milk crate wrapped in a, a paper bag at, at school with some, I don't know, some books or something, I think, from the library that needed to be returned. They're in a milk crate. Bomb squad was called in and yeah. this kind of stuff, you know, and the mom called and said, I'm sorry, I just trying to return some books, you know, mm -hmm. but it's like the, like you say, you know, in Brazil, the guys repelling out of the ceiling over yeah. uh, cake mix on an envelope. Yes. And that kind and, of stuff. And eventually it will become like Brazil where they get the names wrong because one letter is different than someone's surname. And it's a computer error, and they'll come in and, and just take people out. They'll just kill them. That yeah. will come. I'm not kidding you. That's going to come. Yeah. I know it, and it, it's very disconcerting. And I know that's exactly why you say, you know, used to at least there was a little bit of humor in it. These days, it's not even funny anymore. It's just scary because we're rapidly approaching that moment. It's like Mad Magazine. Mad Magazine stopped publishing, and they 
said that, that life was becoming so ridiculous that you couldn't satire it anymore. Yeah. I remember you mentioning that. That's, uh, I mean, that has to be a reality check for folks. You know, and speaking of the, the names and the goofiness and the, the um, sophistry with linguistics, I mentioned that that term of uh, collapse of confidence mm-hmm. has been used once again. And uh, that was interesting. You know, speaking of that, um, I, th- I think of the report that was put out uh, by Doogie Hauser. I call him Doogie Hauser. Peter Orzog, while he was still um, the CBO director before he was the OMB director. Um, and this report was titled Federal Responses to Market Turmoil, September 2008. And in the wake of that, of course, everybody, including Barack Obama, ran around saying collapse of confidence. And it was like... Uh, it was like Icarus and Daedalus, you know, America, uh, you know, the boom and bust cycle. I mean, we were on the heels of a boom and all of a sudden everybody started seeing collapse of confidence. And like you said, the uh, the economists aren't going to tell everybody there's a crash. And all of a sudden everybody started hanging their heads. Yeah, there's yep. a collapse of confidence. Yep. Really? I'm still confident in you. I'm still confident in me. I can still work in you. <laughs> That's right. So. That's right. And so it's a technique, it's all art, it's a science, as I say, it's yeah. perfectly well understood. And um, I always go back to Bertrand Russell, who helped design a lot of the 20th and 21st century, especially in the direction of education as well, not just for children, but for the masses, continuing education, he meant lifelong indoctrination. Um, but he came up to with... with um, uh, with the use of words and slogans, etc. And he said, we must bring on Madison Avenue. And in the 30s and 40s, they were the experts in marketing, you see. And marketers mm-hmm. already understood the, the, the use of language and how to make you want something that you never thought of before, make you buy it. We uh, have by to come back attaching to that. emotion to it. We have to come back to that after the break, definitely. Stick around, folks. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Once again, joined by my special guest, Alan Watt. And um, Alan, you were you were mentioning Bertrand Russell and uh, marketers, etc. Do you want to pick up there? Yes. Uh, he was basically saying that, mar- the, that those in marketing, those who understood psycholinguistics and how to alter human behavior and motivate human behavior along a predicted path, uh, they were the guys who already had that science. And, and Bernays, remember... Um, took the credit for creating American culture uh, during the, the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, the, the consumer society. Uh, they never gave up, of course, because they were on a, a winner, and now it's a massive field to do with um, behavior motivation uh, for the masses, basically controlling millions of people through mind control, technically, 
by giving them and maintaining or altering a culture. The entire culture can be programmed to go along a certain path, and we will behave exactly as we're programmed to do so according to the type of data that's fed into us, how our logic will receive that data, which they understand, and the conclusions that we, we have to come to because of the language that's given to us and that we use to process it. It's a, it's a perfect science. It's yeah. unbelievable. Um, we had a fun exchange off the air. You know, when you say that, and you've mentioned before several uh, times, you know, ad infinitum, I could say, um, about the producer and consumer um, concept being advocated by the same crowd. Yeah. Do you want to throw that in real quick? Yeah, well, it's even... Uh, it's interesting that um, the eugenicists that came out, the eugenics is only one branch of, again, this big pyramid. There's many faces, but it's all the same pyramid. And uh, they came out with uh, sustainable development a long time ago. And the useless eaters, as Russell called it, the excessive population that would exist around this period of time, post-industrial. And uh, it's interesting to even look into the United Nations, which they set up, by the way, as a front organization. Um, and the United Nations has got a description of the perfect world citizen as being a producer and consumer. If you're not both, then you're a useless eater, you're a taker, you see. I, and you know, this all comes under that, sustainability. Yeah. Sorry, i got to throw in, it's, you know, speaking of the sophistry with language, we were having fun the other day talking about the fact that UN, before everything is, is UN, so it's the UN peacekeeping force, it's the un-peacekeeping force. It's the un. It's, it's also uh, French uh, masculine for one. <laughs> right. It's one world, you see. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I didn't mean to jump in in the middle there. And the, the League of Nations was this precursor, which they set up. People don't realize that this didn't blossom by itself or through grassroots movements. It was set up by the big foundations to set up the League of Nations which was touted at the time as being the start of world government by H.G. Wells, who was a propagandist for, uh, for the society. And League of Nations is L-O-N, which in some languages is, is lion, the lawn, you know. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's amazing how successfully, um, you know, you mention the foundations all the time. In fact, today you mentioned um, Club of Rome, of course, funded by um, a number of the foundations and... Um, yeah. I mentioned that I've been going through the the Reese Committee hearings um, to investigate the tax-exempt foundations, and it's amazing how successfully, as Gary Allen wrote about in the Rockefeller file um, in Chapter 4, the the profit times philanthropy equals power. Yeah. And people don't even realize it. You know, I mean, you just mentioned the fact that um, this global government has been massively funded is this just some kind of benevolent gift? No, you have to go back again to, uh, to authors in the past. Um, uh, Adam Weishaupt and uh, Albert Pike of Freemasonry both said that through philanthropy they would take over the social organizations of the world and run the world and they would set up foundations to run these philanthropic efforts but really there would be social transformative changes through these foundations because they would motivate mass groups of people along directed paths. That, that, that's how old the whole idea was of philanthropy. Yeah. 
Amazing. You know, you. Um, I was thinking of uh, speaking again of the tax exempt foundations uh, investigation by the Reese Committee. Um, Thomas McNeese testified about this concept of um, producing and consuming, and so it's in the that's in the congress- congressional record too. Um, but you know, it was documented, and they they used extensive documentation. Um, from these these experts, and there there was the triangle that they were talking about, which was um, the foundations were one leg of the triangle, academia was another, yep. and of course government was the other one, and uh, it's this fascist kind of Soviet concept where you have the the amalgamation of of, of all powers, which is fascism, and then it's run by these Soviets or these councils. That's what Carl Quigley said. It would be a sort of feudal system with overlords at the top. Uh, but it would really it'd be run in a, a collectivist. That's the Club of Rome's term for Soviets, is collectivism. That's what they favored, in fact, over democracy. And said that's what they would bring in, is collectivism. Communitarianism is another term for the same thing. Yeah. Um, so it's all, it's all the same thing uh, planned a long time ago, as I say. And yep. uh, quickly said uh, that uh, democracy was too cumbersome. That was echoed by the Club of Rome in the first global revolution, their, their book by the founders. They said that uh, they, they can't get their agenda done efficiently because of democracy and people squabbling, so they'd have to simply bypass democracy. How they're doing it is exactly that, that they're using the philanthropic organizations, the foundations, with their hundreds and thousands of NGOs uh, to appear to demand on behalf of the public the very thing that the foundations want. This is, this is true socialism, yeah. But it's not um, demands by the people. Uh, they're all front organizations run by uh, these elitists at the top, the, the true socialists. Socialism, socialism has nothing to do with helping the poor. Socialism is an organized, planned society where the natural aristocracy, the elite, the intelligentsia, those who have control already have the right to rule and reorganize the planet in a tidy fashion. That's basically what they say. And like you have pointed out, you know, it's the tyrant's majority. You know, in a, in a, a purportedly democratic system, it's, it's always the tyrant's major, majority anyway. So Yes, it is. If people haven't noticed for the last many years now, it doesn't matter how many demonstrations you have against globalization or votes against amalgamation for integration, whether it's Americas or Europe, uh, they go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, you cannot negotiate with these boys because socialism does not believe in negotiations. There's no compromise with them. It's their way or no way. And we, we are right now going through the process of learning that uh, in, in very heavy lessons. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mean business? Yeah, absolutely. Jumping back real quick, I you know the feudal system. Um, many of the constitutions, state constitutions in the country, which, as Lee Brobst has said, and I agree, are socialist documents. Uh, most of them these days have a phrase in them. I know ours in Idaho does. It says um, in Article Five, Section Twenty, the jurisdiction of the district court. Uh, shall have original jurisdiction in all cases, both at law and inequity. That phrase, at law and inequity, is a feudal law phrase, mm-hmm. which yeah. is interesting. I thought of that when you said that. But, you know, the communitarian thing, I know that you mentioned this week, um, 
going back to Bush one, I think he he was a he was the first one to publicly say it as a president. Yeah. Yeah, and so you have that side of the aisle, and then you know, I mean, you obviously you know mentioning quickly so often, you know, it's obvious there there are no parties, but you know. Supposedly the Republican camp. Okay, so they are communitarians. Then you have guys like John Podesta, who was the co-chair of the Obama transition team and very influential, the founder of the uh, Center of American Progress. And believe you me, he is a hardcore progressivist. I'm not telling you, I'm telling the audience. But he, uh, in a recent interview, um, said that he is a big communitarianist. Uh, that's that's the only one agenda. See, there is only one agenda. So of course they're they're all on board with it. Uh, there yeah. is no opposition to this one agenda. Uh, it's a planned society with uh, a micromanagement of communities. In fact, they're going to clear everyone off the land. That's an agenda 21 for the United Nations. They want them yeah. all stuck in these cities. But only for 30, 40 years as the generations that are presently alive die off. I'm not kidding. Right. That's know, why they're human. not improving the cities. They've been letting them fall apart for years. Yeah, it's human resettlement camps, right? It's I think it's ch- Chapter 7. And out of that like, rises from the ashes eventually these beautiful dome cities, much smaller dome cities. I've got books from the United Nations with, the, with the, the drawings and everything that they hope to set up with the reduced population around the year 2050. Wasn't that John Christopher's tripod series or something like that? Anyway. Uh, I've got that, but I also saw drawings back in the 70s uh, from Galen Weston. I think he's a British lord. Uh, uh-huh. He's also an architect. He owns hundreds of businesses across the U.S. and Canada. But he showed me these drawings uh, of a Toronto with a big dome on it. I says, well, what is this? And he says, uh, that's how it will be in the future. I says, well, it's a much smaller Toronto. He says, yeah, there'll be much fewer people there. Wow. But this is the idea. You'll be brought up, uh, children will be brought up communally in one dome. You'll be taught another one for education. You'll work in another one for your certain amount of life. And you're going through retirement one uh, to, to die off. This is their planned society. These are, uh, this is literally it, yeah. But that's not for the elite themselves. Remember what they said themselves. Right. Charles Galton Darwin says, we the elite will remain free. We must remain free because we are guiding planet Earth. So they will, they'll stay wild, as they call it, like a wild animal. We will be tamed and domesticated. And reaching back to the founders real quick, his granddaddy was a, a, a friend, I suppose you could say, of uh, Thomas Jefferson, getting back to that connection. but Yes. Um, and they also founded a philosophical society. And people don't realize that's the top eugenicist society in the world. It all stems back. Franklin was in it, Jefferson, a whole bunch of the founding fathers founded that one off. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to uh, touch on this real quick and just get your your input because we were, during the break, um, talking about, I know you've mentioned it on air, the fact that Marx uh, telegraphed Lincoln. And I want to I read an excerpt from the um, Army's New field manual. It's not new now, but was released um, October 2008, FM 3-07 Stability Operations. As mentioning, this is lost on most people, but I like to read this. And then this, you know, I mean, we were talking during the break about the fact I mentioned that Thomas McNeese in the um, Reese Committee um, hearings and report, uh, he has a, a smaller report that's included called the Economics of the Public Interest. Uh, that report, and in it he says that during the period, the four-year period from 1933 to 36, an American, uh, uh, 
change so drastic took place as to constitute a revolution. Call it an American Revolution. And you said uh, we started talking about the Civil War, but I just want to touch on this real quick as a prelude to that. And uh, again, this is the Army's field manual, FM 3-07. It says United States military forces have fought only 11 war. 11 wars considered conventional from the American Revolution through Operation Iraqi Freedom. Of the hundreds of other military operations conducted in those intervening years, most are now considered stability operations. It says, contrary to popular belief, the military history of the United States is one characterized by stability operations uh, interrupted by distinct episodes of major combat. But here's where it gets interesting. They start mentioning some of these stability operations, which, of course, is a disingenuous term, but we'll go with that for now. And... uh, This one says, during the reconstruction following the Civil War, military forces maintained order and provided security. These forces also initiated comprehensive measures to establish, and this is the Army's field manual. You couldn't make this up. It says, these forces also initiated comprehensive measures to establish new state governments, hold elections, ensure the well-being of freed slaves, and provide for economic and social development. Says military forces assumed three roles during Reconstruction in the South as an occupational force following the war, supporting a presidential appointed civilian government. Wait a second, what? And there's more, but I mean, I think that's probably far enough. And I mean, that's an astonishing history lesson that is lost on 99.9% of the people in this country. Yes, it is. It, it, it truly is, yeah. And it's in the Army's field manual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I was wondering, you know, with that as kind of a, a prelude, do you want to uh, get into the the telegraph and tell that story uh, real quick, Mark's telegraphing Lincoln? <clears throat> yeah, it's in the congressional records that Mark's uh, telegraphed Lincoln at the end of the war. Civil War and said, um, and the reason he was congratulating him was because he had kept the country together because it was a plank of the manifesto, he said, for cent- strong, uh, uh, supreme, centralized government. Before the Civil War, they didn't have a centralized government as such. So that, that's really what they accomplished. It was, a, it was a takeover of the entire country by one system. That's what it was, centralization of government. I think uh, April 14th was when Congress was recon- reconvened by executive order, and uh, it all gets real interesting and murky from that point forward. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, soon thereafter, we have the rise of the Fabians, the rise of the progressivists, which is really two camps of the same group, and mm-hmm. so on and so on and so on. Yeah, and, you, uh, you always find that uh, once you get into the histories and you realize that they lead to the dominant minority as uh, Huxley called them. He said they've always existed, and he said, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't uh, keep existing. And he gave that speech to Berkeley. Uh, That's the real system that runs this world, and the priority of all forces uh, and all um, military and police, etc., is to maintain that elite uh, and the status quo. That's their job, not to serve the public. We're fed a line of nonsense, of utter fantasy. We always have been. But uh, this elite have already given us uh, indications of the next 50 years or 100 years with the think tanks who have published their findings for the next uh, for the projections for NATO, the U.S. military, and the rest of the world. And they actually see us going through these transition phases 
um, whether it be small cities, um, eventually down the road, 60 years, 70 years from now, of very high-tech, very wealthy, very uh, avant-garde people as far as science goes and well-being, but really um, the, the masses of the public will be dying off in poverty, etc., etc. That's their plan for the future. Unbelievable. And uh, it's no joke, folks. You, We all need to be doing our homework, and uh, we're a long way down this road. Anyway, stick around. More right after this with my guest, Alan Watt. Final segment of Road Warrior Radio, and uh, joined once again by Alan Watt. And uh, Alan, I know before the broadcast, I mentioned uh, the Club of Rome because uh, I know that you talk a lot about the the Club of Rome, the, the uh, Club of Rome report that was put out last month, titled "Cities to Last" by the Think Tank 30, which is a group of young scientists. Um, and they mentioned that uh, United States, Canada, and Norway are uh, three of the top four post-oil economies, and you got a good chuckle out of that when I said that. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> we, we got announced today, in fact, that, that Canada's thinking of bringing out what really is. You see, the U.S. and Canada and Mexico have now, the second part is to merge the Americas with the European Union. The European Union have value-added tax that's tacked onto everything, mm-hmm. uh, high tax, too, on all purchases. And they're going to bring it in here, too, as well. So it was just announced today. It's under a different name, but it's the same thing. Yeah. So uh, we've been reduced to poverty as we bail out the rest of the world, supposedly. Uh, we're also bailing out foreign banks as we go under. Um, we'll never pay off the debt. It's not intended to get paid off because it's impossible to do it with compound interest. But yeah. uh, we're in utter slavery to the taxman. And here they are telling us uh, how wonderful it is. Propaganda is great, isn't it, if, you, if you're in charge of it? <laughs> yeah, and yesterday, uh, it was rebroadcast today, but C-SPAN ran a piece, uh, I don't remember what it was titled off, off the top of my head, but it was a, it was a Federal Reserve, um, I think, sponsored event, and uh, they were talking about that very thing, um, the fact that uh, basically they were looking at low and middle uh, income earning families and why they were having such trouble with debt. And, you know, maybe they just need to change their habits. It was a total uh, neuro-linguistic programming psyop, if you watch it, with these young um, up-and-coming supposed experts that are being groomed. You can tell, you know, they're, they're cutting their teeth and... Uh, but it was it was it was just unbelievable. Yes. I mean, meanwhile, the banks threw credit cards every everyone for the last twenty odd years. Uh, it's, it's just amazing how we're played with in this fashion. And of course, we jump for the bait, and uh, and they turn around and tell us we're so naughty, and uh, and we always take the blame and accept it. Yeah. 
and we pay for it. There was one lady who stood up and she said, uh, you know, I think in all, in all fairness uh, that the uh, higher earning uh, families and households are better equipped because they have more tools and resources at their disposal. And, uh, you know, they might have savings, they might have 401k or this or that. And so maybe that has something to do with this. And, and it, that, that was quickly eschewed. Yes, yes. <laughs> Couldn't well, be that. Logic can't come into it. See, facts have nothing to do with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. unbelievable. Well, uh, thanks, Alan. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for everything that you do and uh, for helping us to... I don't know, try to keep our wits about us as things continue to get weirder and weirder. They will get weirder, but it's been a pleasure to be on with you. All right. Well, hopefully we can do it again soon. Can do. All right. All right, folks, have a great weekend. It's been an honor and a pleasure as always, and uh, I hope you have a great weekend. Take care, God bless, and we'll catch you on the other side. 